The Digital Salon is a curation of listening experiences produced by the alumni and affiliated members of the Urban Humanities Initiative at UCLA. Even as urban space reinvents the enclosure, season two seeks out collectives situated in the city. If our first season asked how the pandemic is a portal, in our second we asked how, within such a time, can we gather? And what do we share? In this podcast that we call Collective, we tune into the knowledge that communal work transmits in polyvocal frequencies and interlocking scales. We're your hosts. I'm Gus Wendell. And I'm Jacqueline Barrios. And for our third episode, UHI alum and PhD student in the English department at UCLA, Miranda Hoberg, investigates the intersections between food, literature, and sound with her undergraduate students in an English class at UCLA. I can go first. So I'm Manuela. I am a senior MIMG major graduating in the spring. And for breakfast, I had arepas, which is a Venezuelan like dish. And it's basically like corn flour. I make them, but it's like corn flour with like water and like salt all mixed in. And it like becomes kind of, if it, if I were to tell you like a pita pocket, but it's different. And you like stuff it with cheese. So I have that and a smoothie. Eating, like breeding, is something we do every day. One of the aims of the course will be to investigate literature that talks about how, what, and who we eat from a critical perspective. How do different literary genres represent and explore food, culinary practices, and the bodies that are nourished from them? What can we learn about practices of reading and writing from considering how we devour texts? And how might our own and our family's eating practices be informed by the texts we read? That's me reading from the syllabus for my critical reading and writing course in the UCLA English department. So my name is Henry and I'm a sophomore still and I'm a graduate in 2023. And the last thing I had for breakfast was an egg and cheese bagel with, I think, with a Gatorade Zero. Hi, my name is Luke. I'm a second year MIMG major. Uh, I'm pre-med. What I had for breakfast, I didn't have breakfast because I'm a mess. I'm Sarah. Um, I'm an econ major and I'm also a sophomore. I'm an international student currently situated in Tokyo, so it's 1 a.m. right now, but I'm also a night owl, so it's no big deal for me. (laughs) Oh, and uh, what did I have for dinner? I think I had sundubu, which is like a Korean hot pot. We just Ubered it in. I'm Divya. I'm a psych major. I'm a freshman, which means I'm probably going to change my major at some point. Sarah, I don't know how you're managing from Um, Fun fact, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But we don't talk about that. (laughs) Um, And I just had oatmeal and a muffin for breakfast. I'm Miranda, um, and I was the instructor of English 4W this quarter. I am a third-year PhD student in the English department studying 18th and 19th century novel. And what I had for breakfast was an Eggo waffle and wheat thins. Can you hear how nervous and awkward I sound here? Is that a train <laughs> or a doorbell? That was good.
Zoom only allows for one audio channel at a time. So how do we foster that sense of being together in a classroom, especially in a course of study about food? Is it possible to disrupt the hierarchy of voice that this produces by centering only a single voice at a time? Especially when the space is mediated by the voice of a white instructor, aka me. What is the role of the personal, the homely, in the English classroom? Perhaps it can disrupt our understanding of a traditional classroom space where we come to interpret and analyze a set of canonical texts, defer to authority, and leave at the end of the quarter enriched and enlightened. This year, my students took the Zoom classroom as a challenge, and they embraced the opportunity to experiment. The students created layered sound pieces, taking readings of course texts and sounds of cooking and eating from their own homes, putting them together in one audio file. In this way, they placed their own voices, their own lived experiences together, not in space, but sonically. There is friction there, dissonance and harmony. What do you hear? I knew I had not taken a stand on many issues since coming to mission, but all along I had been thinking that it was because of my nervous system that the kind of thing I would be able to do. Coming to the mission and hearing my education and doing well at these have been the things that my response to racism is since these things I have lived with that anger and on that anger beneath that anger. Ignoring that anger, feeding upon that anger, learning to use that anger to liberate my mind from anxiety and so as nearly divine as any human being. Once I get through silence, I can be of the weight of that emotion. My fear of that anger is not black would remain. Your fear of that anger. Now, if you weren't wearing headphones for that, go and get some, and go back and listen again. Like I was going to mention, this group played with the audio tracks. Each ear hears something different. What a great way of creating a sense of three-dimensionality, of critically thinking about the process of creating space. I've invited a few students back to Zoom to have a conversation with me about some of the themes of our course. We were calling from all over, Miami, Florida, from Tokyo, Japan, from Marietta, California, from Los Angeles. We came together at 9 a.m. on a Friday over breakfast apart. So I was just thinking about how if sound is a pretty intimate form of communication and so is food, and in our course, we were um, looking at the sound of food. I think it kind of just shows how much we were trying to learn from each other and how much of each other's lives we were trying to understand in a time when 
it's so difficult to form an actual connection with someone else. In addition to not being able to like meet people in person, I was like an international student, right? And so I could only watch lectures asynchronously. And so that sort of sense of intimacy and connection with other people through the audio recordings was even more important to me. I didn't know like before this class how much I needed that sense of connection. I didn't realize how much I missed it. When you first told us to do the audio recordings, I really didn't get the point of it. I didn't know how that was going to help us. But when I started hearing them, I think unconsciously it made it easier to talk. But I didn't think about that like consciously. It was just like in the back of my head. I think I think I had a stronger social experience through Zoom than I did through, say, a classroom. I think in the classroom, it was just always just educative responses, like, but it wasn't really personal. And the recordings made it more personal where you could actually connect with others' experiences through their through recordings. I know Manuela had her recording about her family eating dinner and they're like talking Spanish. And it just made me like feel like I was in one of the chairs at our table. Like it's really personal and it's really vulnerable as well too. Like it's, it's something, it's like a risk you have to be willing to take. No me gusta porque eso me hace ir al baño. Eh, ¿Qué hiciste hoy? Hoy jugué al padre. Compré Bitcoin y fui al y jugué al padre. Hoy había un grupo de argentinos. When we were first assigned the audio recording thing, I was very neutral about it. I didn't know what to expect. I kind of just like I was like, ah, oh, whatever. But it was really interesting because it really humanized the people in our breakout room because um, not a lot of us had our cameras on all the time. So it was like, as a freshman coming into this class and being surrounded by so many like older students, I was super intimidated. And having this audio recording, it really helped because it just reminded me that everyone is going through this, that the black boxes on screen weren't as formidable. It was just like another person behind the screen making breakfast and just like, you know, being grumpy before they drink a cup of coffee. No matter like what culture and what race we are, like everyone needs to eat food. That was what tied us all together, like from hearing all the sounds and all the different foods. And we have like different, different skin tones and different cultures and norms and traditions. Like we can never forget the fact that we still got to eat. Reconcile, to cause a person to accept or to be resigned to something not desired. Mom does not want to be hooked up to no machines, she texts day after auntie passes. That's not prolonging life, that's extending death. To an over, to friendliness, cause to be amicable. We're on the benches, I suggested tea. I blow on mine as the swoopy bangs blow about his face in the golden light. I have a real bed now, not that stupid box spring off-brand foam mattress I bought in installments from Overstock with a gel topper to whisk away the heat I trail off into my matcha green before slicking my eyes back up to Leo. Sorry. They didn't mean for that to sound like an invitation. God, the first thing out of my mouth is about my bed. After that last fight, I kept thinking about what you said, about how I just had a box spring on the floor. I felt ashamed, like so immature, you know. I've been trying ever since to grow up, 
Sometimes it feels like I am. Sometimes it feels like it's everyone else around me growing up, and I'm just getting older. To compose or settle, I will not. When we read, should we expect to relate to what we read? Should we try to reconcile it with ourselves, our experiences, our sense of the world? Try to extract or nourish ourselves with only what we can directly relate to? How can we have an experience with text that's not extractive, but collaborative, conversational? One of the things that comes up when we listen to others read a literary text aloud, a text they didn't write, is that we hear what resonates for the reader, but we also hear them speaking with the text on behalf of, but not instead of, in the place of. Two voices somehow are present. Maybe the, um, like the system of audio recordings and listening to other people's sounds doesn't have a place in all classrooms, but because of the specific themes of like feeding and like coping with loneliness that we had in our course, it definitely had a place in our syllabus and like in our classroom. You know how Tommy Pico was talking about what's the difference between being alone and being lonely? And then he was like focusing on how it's possible to be so lonely when you're surrounded by people. Well, I felt like the audios sort of showed us the opposite. Like it's possible to feel not alone and in the company of others, even when you're surrounded by no people. When you have a system like the audio recordings and like, you know, Luke showed us like how lonely he could feel through his piano songs. And we could hear like Manuela's family vibes through her dinner table um, audios too. So yeah, I feel like those messages definitely got communicated. Poems light up corridors of the mind like food. I grew up on a food desert, a speck of dust on the map of the United States, an Indian reservation east of San Diego in a valley surrounded by mountains that slice through the cloud like loaf, where the average age of death is 40.7 years old. I'm 34. I live in the busiest city in America. I am about to eat an orange. Every feed owns itself to death. Poetry is feed to the horses within me. I really love uh, Sarah's explanation of how we went about this and the ability to feel connections and not feel so lonely, even though we are all literally isolated. Uh, I think that is a really beautiful way to explain things and, and how we're able to share these intimate parts of our lives in these recordings. Um, it's almost like we learned about Tommy Pico's struggle and then we almost evolved from it <laughs> and learned the different ways in which we can connect. Racism, the belief in the inherent superiority of one race over all others and thereby the right to dominance, manifest and implied. Women respond to racism. My response to racism is anger. I, I have, have lived, lived with, that, with anger, that anger, on that, on anger, that anger, beneath, beneath that, that anger, anger, on top, top of, that, of anger, that anger, ignoring, ignoring that, that anger, anger, feeding upon, upon that anger. That anger 
learning to use that anger before I laid my visions to waste for most of my life. Once I did it in silence, afraid of the weight of that anger, my fear of that anger taught me nothing. Your fear of that anger will teach you nothing also. The noise brought Baba Makuru and Maiguru running. They could do nothing, could only watch. Nyasha was beside herself with fury. She rampaged, shredding her history book between her teeth. They are history, fucking liars, they're bloody lies. Breaking mirrors, her clay pots, anything she could lay her hands on, and jabbing the fragments viciously into her flesh, stripping the bedclothes, tearing her clothes from the wardrobe, and trampling them underfoot. They've trapped us, they've trapped us, but I won't be trapped. I'm not a good girl, I won't be trapped. Then, as suddenly as it came, the rage passed. She curled up in Maiguru's lap, looking no more than five years old. Look what they've done to us, she said softly. I'm not one of them, but I'm not one of you. I think that woman gets out in the daytime, and I'll tell you why, privately. I see her in the long, shaded lane, creeping up and down. I see her in those dark grape arbors, creeping all around the garden. I see her on that long road under the trees, creeping along. And when a carriage comes, she hides under the blackberry vines. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. The Uses of Anger by Audre Lorde Jonathan Swift's Amatis Proposal Nervous Conditions by Tsitsi Dangaremga Tommy Pico's Feed Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper These were texts that spoke about difference, that spoke about anger and the hunger for a better world. The students were having a conversation with one another and with the texts through these readings, a conversation that went beyond the kinds of critical distance that we might expect in academic discourse. Could we call this critical intimacy, maybe, which uses the model of the mealtime as its structuring force? That a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old, a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled. I grant this food will be somewhat dear, and therefore very proper for landlords, who, as they have already devoured most of the parents, seem to have the best title to the children. I think food is a very intimate means of communication because the amount of time and effort that goes into it and the fact that it's not just your personal effort, but also the other person who consumes it. And then like it gives them that energy and like satisfaction. And if you're giving them something sugary, then it's emotional satisfaction too. And I think it's like, it's very related to our course. When I cook for my family or friends or like my boyfriend, I like put a part of me into it. No, no nothing creepy. Sorry, that sounded weird. <laughs> um, but it's like I'm offering myself up in terms of judgment. In order to see what we would become, what we were supposed to be, we had to abandon ourselves. We had to go derelict, go wild, let the living dynamics of the world outside us grow over us separately, and then recreate our wilderness with a shimmery wildness. Okay, 
Ya yo tengo clases y aprovecho porque ya esta semana tengo midterms. ¿Ya tienes midterms? This, especially comparing this class to another class I took last quarter, uh, where basically there were live lectures, but the chat room was disabled and we couldn't really talk at all. <laughs> and so it was pretty much like a one-sided, one-way, just like take what you can from the recording. And comparing it to that, it felt like actually like my voice was being heard and it literally was. Another level that I do want to bring is like culturally, um, like my boyfriend's not in my culture, <laughs> but uh, sharing that part of Indonesian cuisine with him, I think that's really valuable. It shares something about me and like my identity and what makes me happy. I got a hotspot, so I'm back. Me being that I'm from Argentina, whenever I'm home, I have like, for example, my aunts and my grandmother, some of them just arrived. So they brought like a bunch of treats from Argentina. And then I've taken those to Los Angeles to my roommates at UCLA. So to be able to get those and share them with people who've like never experienced them is definitely really special. In like the past year over the pandemic, my confidence in myself has increased like so much. And I think a bit of that is because I've spent so much time baking and cooking for myself. It's been an indicator of a good relationship with myself. I baked my own graduation cake and it was just, it was something that I really enjoyed doing because it felt like I was congratulating myself for this milestone that I have reached. And even though we're in this, you know, this horrible pandemic, it was something that I could look forward to and I could spend my own time on. So learning how to love yourself through like what food you're having and the amount of time you put in for yourself is so important. there should be like more stuff like they were like can you like talk more or like have more stuff about like your relationship with food and, and I was like I don't know if I want to talk about that <laughs> but I should do some recording of mm. that would you be okay with that yeah yeah, I feel like that because that's what I ask my students to do, right? Put the, themselves out there. So I totally get that, like, recording myself would, like, ask me to put myself out there in the same way. Anyway. In you go, potato. Potato. Taking the risk to create community through our food sounds draws attention to the fact that we've all got to eat, like Henry said earlier. But it also displays our differences. Was it asking too much, I wondered, for students to reveal who they were having dinner with, what language they were speaking at home, what they were talking about, what it sounded like as they fried an egg? Was it making us spectators of one another? And especially, was it making me a spectator of them? I wonder too if we could talk a little bit about embarrassment. I remember a few of us talking at one point about that like 
kind of recording our families felt, um, or recording your families, I'm not with my family, um, felt kind of voyeuristic or felt a little bit uncomfortable or like the family was aware of being recorded. Wow, so bastante frivol. It was embarrassing doing, a little embarrassing doing the um, the dinner table or like the preparing food audio sometimes because I don't know if this, no, this is probably not just my family. This is probably all families, but my family gossiped a lot and we say a lot of embarrassing stuff at the dinner table. And so I had to give them like a warning and I actually only uploaded the second minute of my recording because the first was filled with like such stupid gossip about like random people in our community or random things that happen during the day. And so the specific conversations like the embarrassing parts and the sort of like nosy parts i didn't want to let the rest of the class know and so i made sure to edit some of those out and like give warnings to my family so they wouldn't embarrass me i i like i warned my family like i warned my i was eating with my brother and my dad and i warned them i was like hey i'm gonna be recording i warned them and we were just talking and it was a very it was a very like neutral conversation there was nothing interesting. It was just like, oh, can you like get this from the fridge? And have you seen the news and stuff like that? But it still felt voyeuristic because I think when you're with your family, that's when all your guards are like usually down because these are the people who like, you know, you spend most of your time with. And just, I don't know, to me, it's like any conversation you have in that sense, like sharing that feels a little bit like you're pushing your own boundaries. So I thought it was a little voyeuristic, but it was definitely an interesting experience, like myself going through that, recording it, and then choosing to upload even like the most neutral of conversations. With my family, I could tell that when I started recording them, things were different. Guards were up. They weren't really vibing with it. And I feel like it kind of taught me to be a little bit more grateful for something else. Kind of like what Divya was uh, touching upon, which was the fact that around family guards are down and that there's trust and there's a level of intimacy there that I, I need to learn to appreciate more and it's otherwise invisible and I feel like this um, recording thing <laughs> taught me to definitely look out for that and and understand what the privilege that has that I have with that because it's not all kinds of families that um, that have that open environment. Pizza. What can't be recorded? And what are we not ever able to be privy to? What do we get close to? I think, in some cases, we got too close for comfort. Those recordings, they don't appear in here. Maybe their silence is most important of all. Would this work in a regular classroom or does it only work on Zoom? I think it would absolutely work in a regular classroom. In fact, I think it might be a little better in a regular classroom. You'll be able to read people's body language a bit more. And I think being like in a physical proximity to each other will make it easier to spark conversations. It would allow for maybe deeper conversations or like more prolonged conversations. 
In terms of the meal prep sounds, I'm not sure there would have been a need for that if we were not in a Zoom environment, because especially when you're living in a college dorm, you just hear all those sounds together. Like when you go down with your dorm mate to like go grab food and then you eat with them and then you come back up and then you can even hear them snore and everything. <laughs> like everything is so much more intimate. And so I'm not sure if that aspect of the recordings would have been necessary. Yeah, I, I definitely see what Sarah means and that there is a different level of value when it comes to a post-pandemic era in the in the sounds that we share. And I think that there could be ways to change that up and maybe find different sounds that you can share that that would introduce that level of intimacy with your classmates. But overall, I definitely agree in the idea of doing this in a non-distance learning. I don't even know what that's called. I'm so used to it. Like a regular classroom, is that what you're <laughs> I, I really think that it's valuable for people to see and understand the people around them. Dear, 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 dear reader. A rue I've learned tonight in this mid-city dinner party apartment tucked somewhat safely away from asthmatic LA freeways is this mixture of butter and flour used to swell sauces and soups and Paul's baked sage mac and cheese that I'm whisking alive like an al dente evanescence cheese rock bop. Many thanks to the team at the Digital Salon podcast, especially Jacqueline Barrios, who gave her time, energy, and attention to this project from its inception. A very special thank you also to Divya, Sarah, Manuela, Luke, and Henry for their participation in the episode, and to Sophie, Kara, Diana, Jessica, Ryan, Jai, Tucker, and Jared for contributing to the sound demos we heard in the episode, including this one. Thanks as well to Paulina, Corey, Denise, Rocky, and Angela for their contributions to the audio archive. And thanks to you for listening. Tune in next week for the next episode of the Digital Salon Podcast, The Collective. To discover the archive behind this episode, visit our website, digitalsalonpodcast.org.